Is this thing still on? I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking? Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Green Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley. And my name is Sarah Fung. And we are your podcast hosts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes. If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the Support Us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly basis. This will help us with the cost of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes. And for that, we thank you and we appreciate you. Hi, and welcome everyone to the Greeners Podcast. Thank you for tuning in week to week. I have a sweaty start to this uh, podcast episode today, but you know, it's all good. Sometimes we make mistakes, we mess up, but you know what? I'm, I'm taking care of myself. I'm taking my, care of my health. And you know what? This episode is actually going to be talking about taking care of your health and taking care of some ideas and concepts that nurses really don't know about. And there's been lots of conversations surrounding you know, the issue of strike. We had our episode last week. Hopefully that gave you a little bit of taste of what nurses did in the history. And now, you know what? Finally, yeah, we have a lawyer. I know you've been waiting for it. So Sarah, please introduce our guest. I'm so excited to have my friend John back again because he came on to the Greeners podcast about a year and a half ago, and he has so much expertise. I think when we're talking about issues like strikes, I always think it's a good idea to bring on the experts because we clearly are not, but we're very passionate about this topic. So John Riederowski is a Canadian lawyer practicing in Toronto. John has been litigation counsel for innumerable clients for over a decade. John has experience before private arbitrators the Ontario courts, the British Columbia courts, the federal courts, federal and provincial agencies, and the Supreme Court of Canada. John has worked for law firms and clients big and small and has helped clients ranging from individuals to international corporations and prides himself on giving timely and efficient service to clients of all stripes. Welcome, John. We're so glad to have you back. Hey, you too. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be back after about a year and a half. It's it's just wonderful um, listening to your voices again, and I can't wait to see um, what we get into today. Yeah, it's great to have you back because, you know, I just feel like you can explain things in such a way that people like myself and Amy, who are not lawyers and have no legal background, can understand. But maybe before we get into that, you could just tell our listeners a bit about yourself and how you got into law. Sure. It's uh, kind of a fun story. Long time ago, when I was in the Army Reserve, one of the members of my unit was uh, Lieutenant and then later uh, Captain Robert Goldstein, who is now Justice Robert Goldstein. But at the time, at the time, his honor was an officer in my unit. I asked him once what he did for a living. He said he was a Crown Attorney. I said, well, that's cool. So what do you do? And he actually let me shadow him at work for a whole four months. And I saw what the public crowns did. I was so impressed. I loved how they were all just excited to be there. They all loved what they did. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. 
So I did it, applied for law school uh, the very next year, wrote my LSATs and uh, the rest is sort of history. But that's where I, uh, that's where I got the idea from. You go from fighting one kind of battle to uh, maybe a slightly more important kind of battle instead. I don't know if I'd say impo- more important. I think they're just like different battles, right? But I think that, that's, anyway. a, that's a pretty dope, like, you know, intro into law. I think that's really cool that, you know, you got to shadow someone for four months. I mean, I think when when we talk about mentorship, like these are those are the mentorship opportunities that most folks don't get. And I think that's super that you got that opportunity. And, and here you are practicing law, being a law badass. And now you're going to talk to us about some other stuff. So how about you tell us a little bit more about, you know, nurses and this whole topic of strike. So maybe could you tell us a little bit about the process and how that would actually work? Because those are the questions that we keep hearing about. Well, it's a, that's a great question to start with, and it's a loaded one. So I'm just going to break it down a little bit. Uh, there's essentially three categories of workers in Ontario. Um, there's people who are not unionized. They can't strike. Okay, it's illegal. Then there are, um, then for nurses in particular, but there, for, there are unionized employees. There are those who work at hospitals and those who do not. If you don't work at a hospital, and that's broadly defined, and I'll, I'll get there in a second, by a certain statute, then sorry, if you don't, if you don't work at a hospital, then you can go on strike. But if you do work at a hospital, you are actually forbidden by the Hospital Labor Disputes Arbitration Act. So instead of having the general right to strike that all the unionized members normally would have, you are actually legislatively deprived or legally deprived of that right. So that's, that's the first bit. Um, And then the process depends on which side of the labor area you're in, whether you're with a hospital or you're not. So it, uh, it's, it starts off pretty complicated. When people say like, you actually can't, what does that actually mean? Because I mean, like by law, you're bound that you can't. But what if a nurse was like, you know what, they can't fire us all. And they stepped out, what would happen? I love it when people ask that question, because it reminds me of that scene from Seinfeld where uh, Kramer went on strike from this bagel shop, like, you know, like two decades ago or something. And he comes back after like 20 years. I think the management's changed. So he's like, well, you want a job? Sure. He comes back. Then at some point during a shift, Kramer's upset and he's like, it's a walkout, you know, and he's just, <laughs> and he's just trying to lead the other employees out. And he's the only one. So it's use Kramer's example because they're not a union environment. Um, he's going to get fired. So to answer your question, maybe that's what happens. If you walk out anti-legal strike, there's a chance. Um, if you're non-union, I f- promise you, you'll lose your job. <laughs> right. There's a term for that. It's like a dereliction of duty or refusal to do work. And you're, you're able to be fired for that. If you're in a union and you walk out when you're not allowed to, and again, there's very specific rules, then you may also lose your job or face further discipline, depending on what your collective bargaining agreement says. And for strike for when you can walk out, it's even more interesting because as long as there is a collective bargaining agreement in place, you're actually not allowed to. So nurses who are under the union do have a collective bargaining agreement that's in place. But I think there's a little bit like a, of a caveat here. So at the beginning of 2019, nurses had their ability to collectively bargain. Then Bill 124 came in, mm-hmm. which is right now before the courts. And they're challenging because it, it impinges or infringes on our ability to collectively bargain. So now I'm just kind of wondering in terms of, of like the legalese world, if we're in that state where, you know, our rights or our, our collective agreement is no longer the same collective agreement, do we still fall under these categories of, or is this like now 
a shade of gray. Ooh, it's a, I like that one. It's tricky. Um, what it really is, is you still have your collective bargaining agreement, but it's being tailored, so to speak, by different legislation. So the one you're talking about, Bill uh, 124, also known as the Protecting a Sustainable Public Sector for Future Generations Act 2019. Um, that one, you're right, it is being challenged. I actually had the hearing date in my notes somewhere. I think it's September 23rd, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's I know like they it's were, actually they were in they oh, were so it's coming up in a few days then. See, I thought they had done some work just recently. I thought, like, I thought I saw Catherine Hoy tweet mm-hmm. out something like that. They're in court at this moment and that I guess there was still more to come. So, like, I guess, you know, you keep listening out to hear what's going to happen. But I mean, I'll be honest, like, maybe I'm going to be that glass half empty person to just be like, I don't think anything's going to come of it. But that's just that's just mm-hmm. my pessimistic viewpoint i may be able to offer you some hope similar legislation in manitoba was struck down it was found to be unconstitutional so you'd asked before sort of the well can they do that can the government do that and this is a question i get all the time the short answer is well it depends on whether it's constitutional governments can literally pass by a majority vote any law they want in canada it sounds crazy but you could pass a law requiring everyone to wear giant top hats and majority of parliament votes for it the senate stamps it and you know it gets royal assent and bam we're all wearing top hats maybe the crazier the better but the question follows is whether or not that's constitutional does it violate something in the charter of rights and freedoms and that was the challenge in manitoba was that it actually fell on the constitutional sword here, um, I believe it was section 2D, which is which protects the right of association and collective bargaining by extension. So section 2D of the charter is the same challenge we have here in Ontario now, and it's pending. Uh, just so you know, for the decision, I would expect it around 2023 sometime. That's the general trend for how long it takes to decide a complicated case. I'm hoping that maybe this one gets a little attention. It comes out sooner. But if it's being argued this month, I wouldn't bet on a decision until next year. Oh, that's good to know. Because in my mind, in my non-legal mind, I'm thinking September 23rd, okay, we'll have a decision by Christmas for sure. But you're saying that the best case scenario is it's going to be 2023, which is so long from now. It seems so long from now, at least. It really does. Um, I can't tell you, I have, I, there are times in my life when I was glad that it took, let's say six months to figure out if I won or lost the case. Cause all the nerves were gone in six months. And I just, I, I was completely okay with whatever happened. And sometimes you win and it's great. And sometimes you, you know, you lose and you go, well, at least the client kind of forgot about it. But back to this one, it's, it, it's important that this one does get decided sooner. And I'll tell you why. If you read a lot of labor arbitration decisions from like 2020, 2021, um, especially when it comes to nurses bargaining for their wages, a lot of those decisions cite this specific act. Like, well, there's a constitutional challenge pending for you know Bill 124 or however they phrase it. And it comes up in so many decisions. And it's like, but until it's proved unconstitutional, and it may, um, we're stuck with it. We really are. Uh, mm-hmm. I was reading a case earlier. I, I won't ramble. I'll tell you about it later. But there's a case I was reading earlier between uh, participating hospitals in the ONA where it talks about this exact thing. Um, and it had to do with wage disparity, uh, specifically gender wage disparity. And this act is kind of the gatekeeper to it. And the decision went that way along the lines of the act. It'd be co- it would have been cooler if this case was decided after that act was ruled constitutional or unconstitutional, because we'd know for sure. Yeah, I think with Bill 124, there's been so much talk about how it's um, affecting 
female professions, right? So nurses, it's affecting all kinds of female-dominated professions, but not firefighters, not police officers, and surprisingly, not even physicians. So I can't help but think that it is a female issue. And um, just going back to what Amy said about how we're not allowed to go on strike, the one thing that I remember from working in the hospital was the verbiage, no strike, no lockout. So if nurses were to go on strike, do you know how that would look? Because obviously there would be some fines involved, um, some punitive action there. The whole point is we're trying to have a civilization here. So how does it play out? I really hope it's not bricks and tear gas and fire hoses. I really hope it's not. All right. Um, come on. No way. Like, I mean, come on. No, go ahead. No, and the thing is, it, it may not. And the whole regime here, especially in Ontario, is designed to break deadlocks in what's supposed to be a fair and balanced way. And of course, it, you know, not every side always feels that way. But fines is probably one thing that could happen, like Sarah said. I don't relish the idea of having, let's say, the police come around and round up everybody who's on strike. In theory, that's a possibility. I don't want to paint this apocalyptic view, but it's it's hard when enough people sort of sit down and protest when they're not really technically legally allowed to or constitutionally allowed to. And, you know, you, you're going you're gonna to force the hand of this powerful entity called our governments, provincial, federal, local, and you might see them flex a bit on you. That's the hard part about it. Now, again, I don't, I don't picture violence. I just telling you that that's, that's kind of what has to happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think back to, you know, some, some historical strikes too. And I think we talked about some in the previous episode, I think it was the Manitoba nurses. They went on strike and it was just like, they literally brought the hospital system to their knees because at the end of the day, they're just like, okay, there's this many nurses that are saying, no, we can't do this. Yeah. They did get a fine, but they ended up getting some of the things that they were asking for. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and we're kind of at a really difficult stage here. We're Nurses are quitting. They're finding other roles that they can get into, whether it's remote work. I watched a TikTok of a nurse. I don't know if you've seen this one, Sarah, of a, a TikTok of a nurse that was talking about why he left Ontario and went to Texas. And he's just like, mm. yeah, our unions are shit here. <laughs> the government's treating us horribly. Why say? And he's like, oh, yeah, in Texas, I work for three days and I make like what my wages would be double, double triple times that than in, in Ontario. And lots of nurses are thinking this way. So, I mean, I just feel that as an entity, because there's so many of us, we should be a lot stronger. But it just like, why are we not? Why do we suck so bad when it comes to like collective action to say like, and it's not even just about the wages. Like, I think that's what where the public thinks, you know, it's just, we're just fighting because we want more money. I think that's a small piece. But when we're talking about patient safety, that's like what people really need to be hearing about. Because for example, someone anonymously sent us something just today about patient nurse ratios at a large GTA hospital, like mm-hmm. a hospital, you wouldn't think that this is happening to you, but it's happening where they have 36 patients to one RN, two RPNs and three PSWs. Who would want to work in those conditions? And it's not even those conditions. It's also what we're giving to patients and families who their loved ones are there. We can't provide the standard of care that we're supposed to be saying that we're checking off when we're documenting. Mm-hmm. And this is what the scary piece is. And and I know that, you know, yes, they say it's illegal. You're saying it's illegal. I 100% agree. But I think that at what point do we say, like, we're fighting for people here and better mm-hmm. health care outcomes? I see some of the data too. I can't speak specifically to some of the things that I've seen 
working in quality improvement. But there are times where there is patient harm occurring because we don't have those staffing safe staffing ratios. We don't have enough staff coming into, you know, an emergency department or ICU. We're pulling staff from one unit to another that may have never worked in that clinical area and errors are bound to happen. So at what point do we say, fuck it all? And do something right. Um, and you know, if I, I'm gonna, I'm actually just gonna quote uh, from from the two sides of this because there are uh, there are two sides presented, and this is this is the participating hospitals case. The hospital starts by saying this pandemic has massively disrupted hospital operations as they have worked to respond to the dynamic and overwhelming demands of the responding pandemic. So that sounds very cold and bureaucratic, but it's you know, but there's there's technical truths there. Um, and the ONA isn't disagreeing with that statement, but they're also saying, remember, the pandemic has brought to a head and exacerbated long-standing systemic inequality, okay? Nurses, while being hailed as heroes of this pandemic and celebrated in words and very symbolic action, it's not enough, you know? And then the case goes on about N95 masks, compensation, the 1% cap we talked about earlier. And you're quite right. Uh, when, do, when do nurses say enough's enough? Well, here's some comfort, if I may offer some. Because of the act we have in place, and you can't go on strike if you're a hospital worker, okay? And that's, by the way, broad, broad, broad category, okay? Sanitariums, sanatoriums, um, geez, uh, long-term care homes, Canada Blood Services, all count as hospitals under this. What happens is, because you can't go on strike, the Ministry of Labor has to appoint an arbitrator, uh, the union gets to appoint one, and then the hospital gets to appoint one as well, and then you're forced to agree, and then the arbitrator is literally going to lay down what the terms are for the collective bargaining agreement. So is it as dramatic as a strike? No but you do get a result somehow. And maybe it's not the result you need or the result you're looking for. So if you can just explain something to me. So let's say we did go to arbitration. That decision is final then, right? It can't be challenged. You can't go back and redo that. Um, limited rights of, of challenges on these is the, is the better way to think of it. If something crazy were to happen, yes, there's a challenge, but I've never seen labor arbitrators do anything that I would consider crazy. It's not gonna be like, okay, yeah, you know what? No collective bargaining rights for anybody. They couldn't do that. That would be crazy. Um, and it would also be illegal. Yeah, it, it's it, it really is tricky. Um, and I don't. I, I didn't want to come here and just say there's no perfect answer, but there really isn't. <laughs> there really isn't. So I have another question. And I'm diverging a little bit here. So one of the things that like a lot of other nurses are asking, like, how do we get out of this? How do we get out of the situation where, you know, for example, in Alberta, they can strike in other provinces in Canada, nurses can strike. So why are we stuck in this precarious type of position? How can we get to that goal? Is, is there even a possibility of us being able to have the option to say, we'd like to call a strike vote and see what we can do? Absolutely. The human touch to put on all this is Policies change, laws can change. Remember that all these are being passed by a parliament and the parliament can then repeal things and change things and amend things. They do it all the time. To give you like a really recent example, during the pandemic, the Ontario government passed so many emergency measures. Uh, the Employment Standards Act was a, was amended to include infectious disease, emergency leave, IDEL for short. I just say idle. That's, you know, like that was included and it wasn't there before. The point is times change, policies change. It's, it'd be trite for me to say, oh, yeah, write to your MPP. I don't know. My MP doesn't answer my emails. Maybe I'm too rude to him or something. But <laughs> but the point is, there are ways. Um, I think the, the union is a very good voice for that. Um, there's enough of them. There's enough, I guess, of a reputation there. There's enough votes, if I may be like that real about it. There's enough votes there that you can probably get people to listen that way. So remember, laws change, policies change. 
Um, I can tell you the mandatory arbitration has been in Ontario since 1965 uh, for the hospital workers. Is it likely to change? Tough to say, but we're rounding out 60 years on that system and maybe it is time to revisit it. I always think that it's time to revisit laws that are obsolete or that aren't working for folks nowadays too. Like I think that, you know, I think that's the one thing that nurses get really stuck on that this is the law. It's going to be like that. Like it's, it's kind of like almost like the stone from Moses days. It's like, here's the 10 commandments. This is, this is law and it'll never change. And I think nurses need and other folks need to be like, how do we get to the change that we want to see? Because I think if you just say, Oh, it's written in stone, this is it. Thou shalt not, it, nothing will ever change. And then I know you, you made a point that you're like, okay, it should be the union that's doing this work. I'm telling you, it's grassroots nurses that are doing this work. Like, I don't, I don't, if they want to come and they want to yell at me, sure. It was nurses that were not working in a union that were saying, sounding the, the alarm bell saying how horrible it was in healthcare. And it wasn't the union. And that's why a lot of us are super frustrated because we're like, mm -hmm. you guys get paid top dollar to do this. Some of them, them have like houses in Toronto mm -hmm. just to be a part of the union. And it's like, okay, do your freaking jobs because we're out here drowning. Because remember, there's very few people that are in the union working at the top levels that are working in a hospital, right? They're like, you know, doing their own thing. So it's really hard to, that disconnect is there where it's just like, you don't understand how bad it is. You don't understand that there are folks going home crying every shift. There are folks that have been abused, um, verbally, physically assaulted, but they keep going back because they know it's the right thing to do. And they're, they're looking for that champion and it's not within the union right now. And it's not within any of our nursing associations. So a lot of nurses are just feeling very, very hopeless. And it's, it's difficult. But I mean, maybe before I'm putting like the, the like rah, 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 slant on everything, maybe you could tell us about some notable cases. Uh, sure. So there's a few. Um, I guess just to bring it back to something you said earlier, you know, the, the general policy right now is that the needs of the many, meaning like the population in general, outweigh the needs of the few. Pretty sure there's a Star Trek quote in there somewhere. I think Spock said that, but like really, <laughs> <laughs> pretty sure it is. Um, but, but the real tricky part is what happens when the few who are supporting the many can't do it anymore. You know, then there's then there's nobody. So it's a few cases. Uh, there's a few uh, there's a few neat ones you look at. Um, there's one from the uh, it's Opsu, if I'm saying that right, local 101 in the Windsor Regional Hospital just last year about a year and a half ago. This has to do, this is the one with the pharmacy tech who wanted to take a leave of absence at the end of her maternity leave. And, you know, she was denied. And the hospital, you know, writes this very, I don't want to say bureaucratic letter, but, you know, it starts with the hospital is an essential service and as such must still be able to staff our hospital and serve the citizens of Windsor, Essex. And it goes on to like state in about two pages why leave was denied. I frankly thought a simple no would have been, you know, easier but so much for not breaking hearts anyway the union does grieve this one and they're not actually successful which is a shame in this case when you when if you know the facts and i don't have time to, to get into it because it's like 50 pages but part of this has to do with a law that i think will change and i promise it probably will but it's a regulation that lets hostels redeploy nurses to different places uh, you mentioned it earlier even if they're not necessarily qualified they're still allowed to be redeployed and leave can be deferred, vacation can be deferred. And it sounds kind of weird that like, well, aren't, aren't I entitled to all this stuff under the Employment Standards Act? Yeah, you are, except when you're not, like now. 
Um, and it's such a bizarre case. And I trust me, there's there's a positive note that, that I will I will leave on. But like that's how this one went. So the leave was deferred. It's tough because now you have a healthcare worker who's trying to figure it out with childcare, trying to figure it out with getting back to work. And if there wasn't a pandemic, maybe leave leave of absence would have been approved. Maybe that's the positive takeaway I had from this one. I think these decisions are so whack. Like I'm smiling on this end because I have information that I can't really divulge on right now. When I think about that type of excuse, right? So for example, we're yes, we're in a pandemic. Hospitals are always busy. Like that the busyness doesn't actually change. It evolves in terms of what is the complexity at that particular point. But hospitals are always busy. There's always some some new change or innovation that they're undertaking. Maybe they're upgrading their electronic system and there's a mm-hmm. huge like informatics change or, you know, they're going through an accreditation cycle or they're doing a who knows what, right? So I really, when I hear that, you know, we can't accommodate you because of X, Y, and Z or we can't accommodate you because of the busyness of our organization, fuck, the organization's always going to be busy. You'd rather lose the employee than actually try to accommodate them. It doesn't make any sense to me. It never made any sense to me. It's just like, okay, yes, there, there's complexity. There's there's challenges. But why wouldn't you think, like the, the whole issue right now is retaining nurses, retaining talent, retaining healthcare workers. Why would you take an approach where you're like, yeah, you know, it's super busy here, but um, we can't keep you if you want that. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Right. It's like the worst, vaguest excuse I've ever heard of. And you're right, Amy, because at the end of the day, if stuff isn't going to change, I just read a report today and it says one in two nurses now are seriously considering leaving the profession. I believe it was one in four before. So we're talking about the system is collapsing. It's actively collapsing as we speak. It's not anymore that it's going to collapse. It is collapsing. And I just think that a lot of people, especially the public, they want to help. They just don't know what to do. And to your point, John, Amy and I have said that you should contact your MPP. And maybe that isn't the most effective approach, but we're just running We're running short on tangible actions that we can take because we feel so stuck we feel so powerless the days of the pots and pans it was nice at the time but really it just went nowhere and like you said it's symbolic it didn't really result in any changes for nurses mm-hmm. um and that's where i may be able to offer like just a little bit of hope so I-, I hesitate to use this example because i know we're pro-science on this channel but i gotta talk about uh, changing policies over time as the pandemic changes and I got to talk about vaccine policies because it's literally the easiest example to show of like the tide turning. If you were looking even in March this year, I would have been hard pressed to point out a, a case where a mandatory workplace vaccine was not upheld. And we're talking like uh, UFCW, uh, Local 33 and Paragon Protection, uh, OPG, Canada Postal Workers, uh, that union, the Teamsters and Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, Unifor and Coca-Cola, all these cases show mandatory vaccine policies being upheld. But fast forward to just last month, and the Toronto Firefighters Association actually won their arbitration where our firefighters were not required to be fully vaccinated anymore. Or rather, there's, I'm missing some nuance in the policy, but it's essentially that's the ruling. And I think that's that you may see something like that change with the nurses. I don't want to say just wait and give the government time. Um, 
if you'll pardon my French, it's been two and a half years of this pandemic. It's time for them to figure it the fuck out. I don't know if I'd say that I'd be surprised, but I also think that healthcare is a completely different environment than, you know, working for the, the, you know, Maple Lodge Foods. Like I think, I think when you're working with vulnerable folks and there's a risk that, you know, um, harm may befall them, like it's actually the hospital's responsibility to prevent harm. You know, there are times and there are cases where there are nosocomial infections. So that's a hospital acquired infection. HAIs are actually supposed to be never events. They're supposed to be events that don't occur because, We're supposed to be doing all we can to protect patients and families. When you come to the hospital, you're coming for a reason. You're, you're most likely sick. You're, you're compromised. Right. So again, it's our, it's the hospital's job to protect folks. So like, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they changed their mind, but I feel like that might be something that ends up staying in healthcare. But I mean, I, of course, like I, if, if I'm wrong and it changes, it changes. But I think that again, this is where I think other people, patients and families, patient advisors, they should have a voice in the say in this too. Like what do they want to see their healthcare worker doing or what, what would make them feel supported and cared for? But again, with times, things change. There's new evidence that comes forward. We have to, we have to follow the evidence. We have to follow the science. And I think that's, that's all I can really say about that. Well, I guess the question is what, what, what sort of system would you prefer? I mean, and how much autonomy would you have, let's say within one hospital to uh, to implement the change you need to support your workers, like if you pick any hospital, like Toronto General, you know, would they be able to offer better policies than, let's say, Mount Sinai across the street? Would that be a thing you could do? I don't actually know that much about inside of healthcare. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm going to be an asshole here, but you know, it was like one percent or less than the people that didn't want to get vaccinated in the hospital. So, like, we're 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 not we're not really like missing out too much. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. And just so we're clear, I didn't mean to imply that any hospitals like not vaccinated or whatever. I think that's here to stay. I just meant as a, as an instance of like something that like in the employment law sector, like legally, we thought this was never going to change. We we're like, oh, no, vaccine policies are here to stay. It's never going to happen. And, you know, later in 2022 rolls around and like you would almost think the pandemic was over the way the rulings go. And, you know, I, I know enough to know it's not, but <laughs> that doesn't mean the decisions don't go that's- that way. That's a whole other podcast episode. (laughs) It's just, I mean, it's, it's unreal. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, like there's, there's COVID fatigue, but we have to like, we have to think about the society that we want, right? Like, I mean, Mm -hmm. I've walked into a grocery store where I forgot my mask or I didn't have my mask. And then I see someone in like a wheelchair with their mask on. And I'm like, I feel like an asshole standing here. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, I mean, I think we have to, we can't forget about ableism we can't forget about the inequities that we saw at the beginning of the pandemic but i know and i've seen how quickly those things are forgotten which is a very unfortunate downside of people's brains and how their their brains work right if it's not happening to them it's not directly in front of them it's it's no longer a problem which is a problem yeah and i think that the way it is nurses are not going to forget how they were treated during the pandemic the public might forget the public you know a lot of people feel like the pandemic's over already but the way i look at it is it affected nurses on so many different levels right professionally personally probably even financially if you ever did get covid and you weren't compensated for your time off um, let's say you were casual or you part-time and 
we were advocating so much for sick days. We haven't seen any movement on that as far as I'm concerned. And even just going back to the whole union, the way that I viewed the union and the dues that I paid every month was almost like insurance to me. It's like you pay this every month because in the event that something's going to happen, they'll be there for me. And I think where nurses got really upset is that they were paying their dues dutifully for years. And now the pandemic hit and we really thought that there would be a stronger voice and maybe a bit more advocacy and we just didn't see it. And, you know, I'm probably going to get hate for saying this, but it's been two plus years and maybe something's happening on the back end, but I just haven't seen any real concrete change yet. There's a funny phrase we have, not just in law, but in some of the policy I used to used to work with ages ago. Um, sometimes you want change to happen slowly and sometimes it can't wait. You don't want to pass radical laws too quickly because then you get things like the Patriot Act. And I really don't want to open that can of worms, but it was a good example of hard times leading to legislation that would have never otherwise been passed. And then when it comes to things like, you know, reform for nurses, uh, the pandemic's happening right now. It was happening for the last two and a half years. We, we were all there. It's hard to say when the, when the best approach is. Um, if, you know, if it takes grassroots movements like you guys, um, like, you know, like like-minded people, I'd uh, encourage you guys to get loud, you know, get, get your MPPs, you know, get their numbers, uh, whether it's a letter campaign or whatever. I can only tell you what the laws are. Uh, lawyers, surprisingly, are not superheroes. Um, we're just very good at telling you what is instead of, uh, instead of telling you what should be. And uh, you'll see judges say that all the time. Labor arbitrators say it all the time, including with that 1% wage. Uh, I don't want to call it a cap, but 1% increase cap uh, for now. That's, you know, everyone's shrugging going, yeah, but that's what it says on the books. Um, and there's only so much you can do, but you can realize who writes the books and, you know, you write to them and that's how you get the change. Maybe in this case, um, I would definitely say that's, that's the only way I see it change. I completely understand and agree with you in terms of the the climate of the type of nurses we have in Ontario. And please, nurses, don't take us the wrong way. But like we just, when I think about change, when I think about even just myself being in this profession for over like 15 years, I just don't see the appetite. It's like there, there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of, you know, distrust of the system. And there's a lot of like animosity, you know, towards mm. the government, towards the Ford government, towards, you know, um, previous governments. But is the appetite there to really, you know, pick up a pen and a paper and write to your MVP, go outside of Queen's Park and rally? No, what I hear is we've worked our 12 hour shift. We're tired. This mm. should be the work of ONA. This should be the work of our associations. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm not hopeful, which mm. is kind of leaves us with other with, you know, what other choices do we have? And I mean, I've already taken my exit and I think that it's for it's multifaceted. I've, I had so much media reach out to me. It's like, is it because of the pandemic? And it's like, there's lots of different reasons why I decided that quitting was the time. It was the right time for me to quit as well. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you have to make a decision for yourself. You have to make a decision for your family, your well-being, because, you know, obviously if you quit your job, you have to find another job. You're mm -hmm. you're out of that income source or whatever. But again, I always boil it down to my mental health, right? Like if at the end of the day, I'm miserable or, you know, I'm not being able to be the mother or the wife or the friend that I want to be and, you know, things are going by the wayside, jobs come and go. And uh, 
Mm-hmm. I made the decision I wanted to make and I feel great. <laughs> this has been an awesome conversation and I've learned so much. I hope that anyone listening has as well. John, is there anything else you want to share with us before we end for today? Um, not really, just more like, again, thank you so much uh, for having me here. Um, you know, anyone, if you do have, you know, other questions about the labor employment stuff, hit me up anytime, www.jhrlaw.ca. Um, you can find my contact info and uh, a picture where I'm a little younger than I am right now. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to leave that one up there. Yeah. You don't look old at all. <laughs> That's so funny. Seriously, thank you so much for having me. I love being here. I love the conversations you guys have, and I'm glad to be a part of it. No, thank you for coming. And you thought it was going to be dry. It wasn't dry <laughs> at all. We're going to put all these references to Seinfeld in the show notes. I'm going to find that episode. (laughs) The soup kitchen. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, John, for coming on to the Green Nurse Podcast. 